I think it's only fitting that um, after speaking on what is the gospel, um, to, to be able to do a series on the finished work of the cross. Um, I know that it's quite interesting when you, when you begin to preach on anything that uh, really shakes or is different to what people's sort of personal or public opinion uh, or what they've been taught, how people begin to react to that. Um, firstly, reaction doesn't solve the problem. In actual fact, reaction uh, creates more problems. The best way to, to do anything is to actually uh, respond, is you take time and respond. You can respond in a, in a more positive manner. Um, the other thing that happens is um, when your theology is shaken a little bit, um, it's a sure sign that you need to begin to look deeper into what your belief system has always been. Um, you know, if I stand on what I believe, I, I'm not shaken. I know what it is. I don't even need to react in any way to it. Um, N.T. Wright, um, who is a Bible scholar and a theologian, uh, otherwise known as Thomas Wright, um, in, in a book that I've, I've been reading, uh, he mentions in his opening statement that every generation needs people who will challenge what we've always understood to be truth um, so that we can go deeper. And, and I think that Jesus was one of those people. Remember, when Jesus came, everything he said was controversial to what the public opinion or the legal system or the teaching of his day was. Um, and he brought about a reformation through that. He was actually rightly interpreting what they had misinterpreted. So we, none, none of us have it all right. And so I'm, I'm glad that that last series was both helpful and challenging. Um, and I trust that this one will be exactly the same. So I want to preach over the next couple of weeks just on what took place at the cross. And N.T. Wright said this as well in, in, in this book that I've read. Um, he, he said that, thank you, that... The, the day that Jesus died, a revolution began, and, and the day that he rose was a sure sign that that revolution was now in play. I, I, I beg to differ with that, and I really like N.T. Wright, and so I'm not, I'm not um, arguing against the statement. I want to take it one further. I want to say that the day that Jesus was born into this earth as a human, the revolution began. And, and, and the day that he died we were brought into that revolution. I think that that, for me, makes more sense. Um, it doesn't matter if you look at it his way or not. We, we, we're heading in the same direction. A revolution has begun. I believe Jesus was that revolutionary from the day he was born. And when, the, when he started his ministry, it was evident that something had changed. Okay. Hebrews chapter 8 says this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better than the old. In brackets, I added that myself, better than the old. Since it is enacted on better promises, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, second covenant. And then I love how he speaks about the fault of the first covenant. And the fault is, God never, when God gives something, it is always perfect and good. The covenant that God gave to mankind at Mount Sinai through, through Moses, there was no fault with the covenant. There, sorry, there's no fault with what God gave, but there was a fault with the covenant because of mankind. Okay, remember this. God is never at fault. It's face facture, Okay. And he, and he clarifies that in this next statement by saying, for he finds fault with them. Who? With, with Israel. 
When he says to them, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first covenant obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I understand that's a beautiful, beautiful text. Um, we know that the, the first covenant, God found fault with the people. Um, they had a choice at Mount Sinai to either choose this new covenant, sorry, to choose what God was putting on them and asking them to fulfill in their own ability, or they were able to turn and say, no, we, we choose to stand under the, under the covenant of our father Abraham. You know that, they had a choice, as we do now. Humankind has a choice to choose this new covenant of what Christ has fulfilled or not. It was the same back then. Free will is, is, is imperative in love. It's imperative. Without, without love, you cannot have free will. And without free will, you cannot truly have love. So I want to take you through what I think, because as I mentioned in what is the gospel, the gospel was not, and the, and the event of the cross was not just that, God, that Jesus died for your sin. It wasn't. We, heard, we learned about that over, that over the three weeks that I, I managed to preach. And I, I, want, to, I want to also say that, that in limiting the fact that the cross itself and the event of the cross and what Jesus as a human being went through on that cross, okay? Remember, fully God, yet fully man, yet he laid aside his deity, so he took on the form of a man. Okay, we have to understand that that's a reality, that's a truth. Without that understanding, it, it, our life in him almost, can almost become impossible to fulfill and do and continue the works he asked us to if Jesus acted in his divinity. And it says he laid aside that. Okay? So the event of the cross and what Jesus went through on that cross is not, is, is, is needs, not, needs to not be limited to the fact that he simply just died for your sin. There's a whole lot of other things that Jesus did in completing and fulfilling the law, in completing and fulfilling where mankind was living in lack and where we had failed to bring us into a new life, a complete new life, and therefore into his kingdom, which was the new life as a life in his kingdom under him as the, gov as the governing ruler, okay? So I want to start with a few of these things in no particular order of importance. It's just this is how I've put it together. I wrote this manual, which I will make available to um, the leaders of the church, and they can do as they please with it. I wrote this manual for churches in Pakistan, India, and Sri Lanka who were living in gross legalism, and, and, I, and I take them through the events of the cross, and it's been translated into a couple of their local languages to assist them. And um, I'm just going to be preaching out of this manual, which I wrote a number of years ago. I don't, can't even remember when. Okay, Isaiah, I want to talk about the beating or the scourging of Jesus' body. Isaiah 53, Isaiah, Isaiah is the Jewish gospel. This is, the, this, is, this is what they were waiting for. They were waiting for this Messiah, okay? And Isaiah, 50, Isaiah himself is probably one of the most prominent 
um, prophets of his day that were, that were speaking directly into this gospel. And so they were waiting for this person that Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says this, and I'm reading from the ESV. Um, I, I love the ESV because of its, um, it stays as true to the original grammar as possible so that you don't lose it in, in waffling. You know, just uh, sometimes they can waffle out of what the true meaning was. However, it is a reformed version, and so I need to continue to go back into the original text to, to, to take out the reformed view. Because the reformed view, in my opinion, is, is incorrect, okay? They, 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 they limit some of the power. It's just the reality of it, okay? Um, nothing wrong with, with, you know, different versions of the Bible, but we need to always go back to original text. So it says this in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. Okay, now I want to take you just to what that word griefs means in the original Hebraic language. And it's the word koli, K-H-O-L-E-E. And it actually means this. It, it stands in one, it, there's only one uh, translation for it, and it's sickness. So as you can see already, the Reformed Bible is saying he has borne our griefs. The tr traditional, uh, true language is he has borne our sickness. And he's carried our sorrows. The word sorrows is makobi, um, M-A-K-O-B-E, and it means pain. Physical and mental, it says, in, in my Strong's Concordance. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. And the word transgressions there is correct. It's, it is the word transgression, for our offenses towards God. He was crushed for our iniquities. I'll read it out of the, the King James as well. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Okay? The word afflicted there is the word to be occupied, to be uh, afflicted, oppressed, humbled. Okay? For our iniquities. Upon him... was the chastisement, and the word chastisement means the discipline, that brought us peace, shalom is the word. And with his stripes, or by his stripes, we are healed. Okay, now, some scholars, um, reform scholars in particular, would say that the, the people of the day were actually under oppression, living in exile, they were physically actually beaten and broken, and so he was speaking into the fact that when the Messiah came, he would deliver them from that now current physical affliction of pain and sorrow and grief, right? However, the, the conflict comes is when Jesus himself actually arrives on earth, and he actually physically fulfills this in the sense of he does physical healing, he does physically bring a person who is bodily or fleshly ill into a place of complete healing. Blind eyes is a physical ailment, healed. And so Jesus himself fulfills the very text that Isaiah was speaking about, which then nullifies the understanding or the popular teaching that he was trying to deliver them from the, 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 the um, affliction of their day. It isn't that. He actually physically brings us into a place of physical healing. That's why we see people healed. It's, it's, there is no other explanation that I have other than the fact that when I lay my hands on a sick person and in the name, which is the authority, name means it's not his name, Jesus, it's in the authority that comes with him, in the authority of Jesus, the Messiah, when I lay my hands on a sick person and they are healed, it's a fulfillment of this. It's a physical healing as well as a mental healing, as well as a spiritual healing, which we get onto a bit more later, Okay. 
And that for me just disarms the fact that people can't be healed today. When, uh, uh, when, I've been through, through seeing physical healings and I've been through seeing mental healings and I've been through seeing spiritual healings and emotional healings and all of these are included in the word shalom, peace. Peace isn't, as I said before, an absence, I don't even know where I said it, but I wrote this down somewhere. Peace is not an absence of war because we're in a battle every day, but peace is actually the absence of fear. And with that peace, that shalom peace comes physical rest to the body. Now, when you have, a, when you have an infliction in your body, there is no rest. In actual fact, physical science, science and medical science, sorry, should I say, medical science proves that, that when that our bodies give off sound and they give off sound waves, although they can't be heard, there's frequencies in our body. I know this is a bit wild, but that is a reality. Go and study it. It's been studied. There are frequencies in your body, okay? And, and when you have a cancerous tumor, it has a distorted frequency. They can, they can physically pick up waves of what it looks like, and it's distorted. My belief is that in the name of Jesus, be it in, in, in English or Afrikaans or German or Spanish or any language that is currently spoken or has ever been spoken or shall ever be spoken, I believe that when the name of Jesus is spoken, the frequency of that name being spoken out loud goes through and can right every wrong. That's my belief. It's my belief because I've seen it physically. And on the other side, I haven't seen it. As we all know my story, and I know other people in this church have passed away from, from, from diseases and sicknesses. That, that is a reality. Sometimes we pray for people, and, and, and a simple cold will not go. But my, the only understanding I have of that is this. People are healed for the simple fact and reality that the kingdom of heaven is now. But people are not healed for the simple fact and reality that the kingdom of heaven is not yet. We live in this parenthesis between living on an, in an earthly unredeemed planet, because it's not fully redeemed. And that's why when Jesus comes back, he will fully consummate and fully redeem all of the fallenness of, the, of this planet. But at the moment, we live in this place where there is a cursed earth system. And there is a kingdom reality. The kingdom reality lies in the church. And as long as the church lies dormant, or as long as the church lies under the cloud of a, of a mixture of the old covenant and the new covenant, guess what happens? We are not operating in the fullness of what we see Jesus commanding us to walk in. And so we do not redeem the planet step by step as we are pushed back under the cloud. That's why it says that every time in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, every time that Moses is read, meaning the law is read, a veil covers the heart of the people so they cannot see the glory of God. When, when that's preached from the church, the veil covers and we can't see the glory of God. But as we lift that veil through, hopefully through understanding what Jesus did on the cross, I thought they had a picture of a cross up there for some reason. Um, as we see what he did on the, on, the, um, on the cross, what will happen is it's going to liberate us and remove the veil. Hopefully. Peter says this, 1 Peter 2 verse 24 actually refers to the scripture in Isaiah, which now brings that text into the New Testament. And he says this, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So he pulls that in now. He pulls something of what Isaiah was saying in. There is a stripe, I've written this down here, and I've actually highlighted it. This is my little revelation. There is a stripe on the body of Jesus that has every sickness, disease, pain, sorrow, hurt, anxiety, fear, 
for you, he carried it on his flesh while he hung on that cross. Isn't that a powerful statement? Who needs healing from sickness, disease, pain, discomfort, emotional stuff? Let me tell you now, there's only one person that can bring that to you, and that's Jesus. And a reality, a revelation, a, a repenting in your mind. You don't have to repent of, uh, the, uh, repentance means to change your mind back towards. And this just flows so wonderfully into the next one. Christ, part two, point number two, is Christ became a curse. You have to understand that he became a curse. He wasn't cursed, he became a curse. I'm going to read out of, um, so let's first start with this. In, in, in Deuteronomy, we see all the blessings and the curses. We see them all. They're there. It's laid out. If you do this, then you shall receive these blessings from me. If you don't do this and you do this instead, you will receive these curses. Now, these, this was, when God speaks something, he establishes it. So he's going, if you, if you let's use the, the, it's called the law of sowing and reaping. The law of sowing and reaping was established when God spoke it. It, it, it. He says, if any human being sows, they shall reap. But if you don't sow, well, you have nothing to reap. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a natural understanding. If you don't sow, you're not going to reap. Now, a, a heathen, a pagan, or whatever you want to call them, unsaved person, any person of any other religion, if they sow, they will reap. Why? Because it's established by God over the universe. It's not just for Christians. It's for everyone. So the same thing happens. God says, if you do these things, remember again, the choice is yours. It's not God, it's yours. If you do these things, by your choice, my blessings are established here. Now that's God. God puts blessing here. God doesn't bring curse. So he only brings blessing, right? There's, if this is where the blessing of God lies, if we had a, if we had a, a ray, say this is a dimension, that's the end of it. And this is the beginning of it in line with his chair. And God says, in this realm is my blessing. But in this realm is a cursed earth system, which was brought about by Adam and Eve when they decided to walk outside of my will. It was not brought about by God. The choice was Adam and Eve's. God did not orchestrate that Adam and Eve ate from the tree. That is called um, hyper-sovereignty. It's incorrect. It means that God, if, we, if we believe in hyper-sovereignty, we believe that God is the author of, of sin, which is impossible because it defames the name of God, and therefore, it's a dangerous place. It's heresy. Okay. As a human being, if I, Brad, choose to live here in accordance to what God has asked me to do, I automatically sit under the blessing that he himself has effected. But if I choose to live here, I can't now say, God, you're cursing me because I myself am living in a cursed earth system by my own choice. This is God's realm. This is the earthly realm, which was originally put under our authority. The heavens belong to the Lord, the Bible says, but the earth he has given, and the word given in the original text means all authority has been placed in the hands of. The earth he has given to man. Now, when Adam and Eve ate from that, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they, a, a, a condition called sin entered into mankind, into humanity, and, and there was no sin before that. But this thing of sin, which we're not going to talk about what sin is now because it's, 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 it's not relevant to the, the current subject, but sin entered into man, and, and a cursed earth system was established on the earth. And we'll read about that in a few moments um, when I get through it. But he says, Galatians 3 says this, 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one can be justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, or was hung on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, see he goes back to the previous covenant, might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So this is why I look at it. The promise, or the blessing, is the spirit. The spirit given to mankind to come and reside inside of us so that we become one with God and God becomes one with us the way that Adam and Eve were in the garden, the way God originally intended it to be. The curse for me is this, everything outside of that life. It is everything outside of the life of living one with God is a curse. Even if to the, to the natural eye right now, there might be a season of what we perceive by human standards and secular standards to be a blessing. Ultimately, it's not a blessing because you are living outside of Christ. Does that make sense? So the curses that were afforded by the law were placed upon Jesus and that he in fact became a curse for us. He didn't just carry your curse, he became your curse. Isn't that incredible? That means this, that if God was to curse you for doing something wrong, it would mean that he would have to reject the very work done in the body of his own son, Jesus the Messiah. There we go, finished. As far as I'm concerned, there's a full stop at the end of that, and you need to start a new chapter. You cannot then go, but, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I have a, a, a strong distaste in my mouth when I hear preachers preaching things like that. Your car broke down because maybe you didn't pay your tithes and offerings. Or, or if you've been sinning, then this is why the sickness has come upon you, because God is teaching you a lesson, or he's trying to cause you to love him more. There is nothing in scripture that says sickness and disease or any form of curse is placed upon a human being by God in order to bring them into a better relationship with that father. There is nothing in scripture that says that. It has been sought out by men time and time again, but men who have certificates on their, on their wall in a frame who says they went to a, a seminary college or, or have done a theological degree, because they state these things from the pulpit, everybody in the, in the auditorium or the crowd believes it to be true, and nobody goes back and checks it themselves. But when I started checking through it, I found out that it wasn't true. And sickness and disease come simply because we choose not to live here, but in a cursed earth system. And no one can be blamed for a cursed earth system except for one person, and his name is Lucifer, a.k.a. Satan, a.k.a. the devil, a.k.a. Beelzebub. But the choice is yours as a human being and mine to live under God's way or under the way of a cursed, broken, fallen earth system. That means that when you do something wrong, you can't blame God for the consequences. The consequence is yours and yours alone. But you can change what's happening. So I might make an error, step out of God's way, feel the weight of something uncomfortable or not the pleasant, peaceful life that God wants me to live in, live over here, but I can quickly make a decision to go, hang on a minute, I'm gonna stop doing that. That's what repentance is. Oh, I've got a better idea. That's what, in layman's terms, Brad's message Bible, 
oh, I've got a better idea than living here by myself. I'm going to live here by God. That's what repentance is. It's a change of your mind. It's not a groveling in forgiveness before God. Please forgive me. Forgive me. That's not what repentance is. It's not even, it's, the, the correct text of that has not even got anything to do with that. It means metanoia, change the mind. Galatians 3 verse 21 says this. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. If a law was opposed to the promise, then there would have been a law that was given by which you can, you can gain blessing. And, and you can gain more, sorry, more than blessing, you can actually gain righteousness. If that was the case, if, 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 if the law had, if there was laws that would enable us to actually gain righteousness, by fulfilling that law in your own strength, then that law itself would stand in contradiction to the promise of God. Because the promise of God says you cannot achieve it by yourself. That's why he says there that the law is not contrary to the promise. It actually sits perfectly because it's a, it's a show that you can't achieve this, this uncursed, blessed life, should I say. In Genesis 3... We see the fall of man. Through this fall, as I said before, we entered into a cursed earth system. I want to read that text out of Genesis 3. It says, because you have listened, this is Genesis 3, uh, verse 17 to 19. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you shall not eat of it, then cursed, listen to this, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow or your face. You shall eat the bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now, if through man's decision we entered into a cursed earth system, by Christ, we enter into a redeemed earth system. We, uh, uh, effectively, we do. We, we, we affect the planet. As Ben, I can't even remember the quote that Ben quoted that I said to him in some text, but the, uh, along these lines, the day that man ate from the tree, death came, and we, and, and we entered into a curse. The day that Jesus hung on a tree is the day that we received life, and we entered into a blessing system. The curse upon mankind is removed. You have that answer in you because you are one with Christ. We are ambassadors for him. Therefore, where we go, we go in the authority of Jesus. Now, I believe that the church has the ability to remove poverty. I believe we do. I believe we have, it doesn't mean we have to be multimillionaires to do it, but I believe that, that when, when we are generous we have an ability to have an assault on poverty. It's, it is a reality. Your generosity, and when I mean, and I don't mean just generosity of finances, but generosity of the heart, which will overflow in many things, will remove the, the curse. Where, where man had to, had to um, 
work and toil by the sweat of his brow. I believe that that poverty mindset is removed. And I know that Ben's spoken to me about somebody um, having a, a, a revelation of, of, of the crown of thorns. My revelation is this, that by the sweat of man's brow, we shall toil the earth and it will bring forward thorns, it says. It says thorns. Did I read that right? And you, you shall, um, where does it say? You shall eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. Um, all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. I think it's quite amazing that by the sweat of your brow it will bring forward thorns and thistles. Yet when the thorns were placed onto the brow of Jesus and blood came down, his blood washed away that poverty mindset. His blood washed away that cursed system. And, and where, where thorns were brought forward, the thorns placed on Jesus brought forward that we don't have to toil so hard for the blessing. The blessing comes now by faith. See, blessing is not money. It's different. It may, it may uh, manifest in money. It, it can manifest however it needs to for the individual or for that nation. So, uh, so, so for us here in Australia, we're quite a wealthy nation, so we don't really need uh, blessing to manifest in money. But, but, in, but in Ethiopia, they would very, very much like to have uh, blessings manifest in money so they can provide many, many things. But for them also, they would like it to manifest in rain in, and manifest in, in crops growing. That's a blessing. You know, so so what, what, is, what, is, what is the blessing that needs to manifest in Australia? I think there's many. But we always think of, of, of a, we, we don't think of, we think of nations like that are, that are living in, in, in actual physical poverty and, we, and then we, and we take that blessing and go, well, what they need is a blessing we need over here. Oh, well, we don't actually need that because everything's fine. So Australia doesn't need a blessing. Our blessings, we, we have just as much curse, cursed earth system as they do. It's just manifested in a different way. I think family's a big one. I think self-harm, understanding. I think, um, um, what's that thing called? Tall poppy syndrome, where you want to chop off the head of the leader. That, that whenever, whenever a man gets ahead, they want to bring it down. I think that, that changing, changing the, the, the poverty, uh, sorry, not poverty, sorry. A poverty mindset is different to living in poverty. But I think one of the curses that I've been watching of late is this, is wanting to reduce the, the, is wanting to reduce the wealthy class to increase the middle class. And I think if you take away from the wealth, then there's no one to generate jobs and money for, for the middle do you see what I mean? Because we don't want anyone to be ahead. We always want to be, we all want to be equal in, in life and status. And, and yes, while we're all equal as human beings, there, there's, a, there's a bad way of thinking where, you know, we bring, we bring these people down so we can thrive. That never works. If I drop people for my ability to live up, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a wrong system. Okay. Whew. Let's go into the next one. Condemnation of sin. Yeah, I could talk about the cursed earth system forever. Um, there, there's so much in there that we can actually walk through and so many ex examples I can give. Bottom line is, um, the day that Jesus died is the day that you were given opportunity to walk into a, a blessed earth system and that our job now is to rather become a blessing. That's what the scripture says, that, that we become a blessing. Condemnation of sin. Romans 8, verse 1, 1 to 4 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. I just, you see how that's always put back onto you and me. It's put back onto humankind, right? For the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Isn't that just an incredible text? This, this comes after, this is post the whole thing of, you know, the things I, Paul, where Paul writes, the things I want to do, I do not do. And, you know, he goes through that whole thing. It's of, of, of Romans chapter seven. You know, when I want to do good, I do bad. Because I want to do bad, it's not, no longer me, but it's the sin acting now. Now, now again, our, our, our wonderful brothers from a, revol, from, from a more reformed view, they believe that, that the, sinful, the nature of sin is still in you. And, and that, that, that Paul is speaking about his internal conflict that he has. In actual fact, if you go back to the chapter before that, Paul writes this to his brothers, because remember, Paul's writing to the Roman church, and the Roman church is made up of three people as far as Paul understands, because he had not yet been in Rome. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he hadn't been in Rome. He was writing to three people. Number one, he was writing to Christians, Gentiles. Sorry, not Christians, Gentiles, okay, who were possibly Christians, and, and maybe some of them weren't. He was, he was writing to Jews. Some of them may have believed in Jesus, and some of them might have not. And he was also writing to a mixture of probably some Roman people who may have come into this community. Okay, and Paul, even though you had, remember, you need to understand this, we are thousands of years down the line. We have a different understanding as we've heard so many texts of the Bible. These, these Jews who, who had even come to believe in Christ still had a, a strong mindset to hold to the customs of Moses, to, 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 to still fulfill the law. This, was not, this is not different. This is not a, a different situation for them. So, and you can see in Paul's letter, as you read it, that he goes from Gentiles to Jews. He actually dresses a number of crowds at the same time. And in this particular one, in Romans chapter 5 or 6, he says, now I'm speaking to you who know the law. Who, who are they? Remember, Gentiles didn't know the law. So he's talking to the Jews. Now speaking to you who know the law. And then he goes on to, to dispatch what he dispatches in Romans chapter 7 about the internal struggle that he had. And then he goes on to chapter 8 saying, there is there, there is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What I believe that was going on is Paul was actually going back into a lifestyle of living under the law. And he's trying to engage with these um, uh, Jews about this lifestyle of there's this what I want to do right I don't do right because there's this internal struggle within me and I can't obtain anything but thanks be and then he steps out of it thanks be to God who through Christ Jesus has redeemed me saved me so when we read Romans chapter 7 we don't read it as you still have a sinful nature it's actually if you read it that way you've actually opposed what scripture itself says because it says that he took our sin that we he removed he died on behalf of your Nature of sin. Okay. So out, out of the 47 times, there's 47 times in the book of Romans, they use the word sin. It is used only twice as a verb. You know what a verb is? Let me go, let's go back to school now. A verb is a doing word. Going. Sleeping. Jogging. That's, that's a verb. Sinning. Okay, thanks for bringing it back into, you know, <laughs> the confines of church. Let's keep, it, let's keep it scriptural here. Sinning. 
But the other times, all other times, which makes it what, 45 times out of the 47? Okay, so all other times, it's, it's, it is as a noun. And a noun is a place or a state of being. I am a man. You are a woman. Gold Coast is a name, it's a place. It's a noun. It's a, it's a, it's a being word, not a doing word. Okay, it's a state of being. And, and, and it's, when it's, when it's spoken about as a verse or as a noun, it is only ever in the singular, never in the plural. Now, when we add the word, when we add the letter S at the end of sin, making it sins, making it many, what we do is we, we actually say that sin itself is the actions that we do. But sin has never been the actions we do. Sin has always been a condition that we were. Or if you're unsaved, unredeemed, a condition you are. And so it's only one. He died for the sin of the world. He died for the sin of mankind. He himself took on our sin, a condition. What you do out of the condition of fallenness, of sin, of unbelief, and I'll, okay, stop there. So living under that condition, what you do, your acts of the flesh are in line with that fallen nature. But when you live by the Spirit, you can't then fulfill the acts of the flesh because the spirit, you will see that in a different text, the spirit is opposed to the flesh. And, and when you live with an unredeemed mind, you continue to act without sin with works of the flesh. You know that a Christian can still do works of the flesh. You, you know that he, we can, obviously. We all know that because you do it. I, mean, I do it, so, so we, it's, not, it's not like it's obscure. But we've been taught that, that that's because you still have this sinful nature in you that you need to bash down. Okay? But it was impossible for you to do that in the first place. That's why Jesus came. So then why, when Jesus, after he's come, do we still expect people to do the same thing we couldn't do before he came? And then we, we squeeze in there, well, because he's given us now his commands and his spirit. <laughs> Mate, listen, now you're trying to base an argument on your fallen understanding. You either are in sin or you are in Christ, one or the other. Make the choice. And if you are this side, I, I strongly suggest you get to this side. And if you are this side, then you need to just have your mind renewed this side. Now, I can tell you that because you go, oh, but mate, I'm tempted. I want to look at pornography or I want to get drunk or I, you know, I want to sleep with women or I want to you know, scam a bit of money out of the, the cash flow at work, you know, the, what's it called, the little kitty box or whatever. I want to do things. Because, so, so I'm tempted. Now, listen, yeah, the Bible says that Jesus... This is, this is why Jesus can, can relate to us and, and have sympathy on us and have compassion for us. Because it says that even though he was tempted, yet without sin. Now, we've interpreted this way, or it's been taught this way. Jesus was tempted, yet he did not sin because he had self-control. Friends, that is not what it's saying. Like, if you actually read it, it says he was tempted, yet without sin. It doesn't say he was tempted, yet he did not go on sinning. Because he had self-control. Let me tell you this. He, he was tempted in the flesh, yet he himself had no nature of sin. Well, are you born again? Then you have no nature of sin. Can you still be tempted? Well, Jesus was, yet he had no nature of sin. It's what you do with that temptation that counts. Jesus didn't give in to the temptation. We sometimes do. <laughs> so we just got to learn not to. Now, Jesus had one thing that he did right that we often fail at. He learned to walk by the Spirit. And according to the Scriptures, it says, if you walk in Colossians, if you walk by the Spirit, you shall not or you will not 
gratify the desires of the flesh. The old NIV translations would say, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not desire, that's why you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Then they got clever and went, oh, hang on a minute. No one else is using the word sinful nature. So why are we using the word sinful nature? And they went back to using the correct word, which is the word socks, and it means flesh. Because people were getting confused. They went, oh, if I live by the Spirit, I won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So I grew up believing I still had a sinful nature. And my lifelong struggle was not to advance God's kingdom, but was to keep myself in check. That's the devil's plan. Exactly right. The devil's plan is to do this, is to keep you away from living out the commands of Jesus. So we make the commands of Jesus, learn to be a good Christian. Stop living in that way. And that becomes the battle we fight. It becomes an internal battle. And all the sermons from the pulpit are around that one subject. Live well. Learn to obey God. Stop doing these things. And then you throw a little bit of happiness inside there so everybody's schizophrenic in their Christianity. They are. But we're not. So, 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 so anything that takes away, let me tell you this. This was a revelation 10 years ago to me, maybe more. Every single teaching that takes away from the absolute, complete, and victorious, finished, and let me say that word again, finished, finished work of Jesus, is called in the scriptures a doctrine of demons. A doctrine of demons is anything that diminishes what Jesus completed as final and absolute. That means that if I teach that we need to stop our sinning in order for what, what anything, walk in God's ways, be a blessing, stop being, anything that takes me into that way of living is actually a doctrine of demons. And that was a massive wake-up call to me because I was someone who was teaching the doctrine of demons at the time. Not because I had a bad heart or I wanted to demonize people, but because my understanding of the truth of the text was warped. And so I became a scholar in my own right, and I began to search into the texts as best that I can and dig into the original meanings of them and, and look through historical, um, sorry, through scholarly documentation and, and read some deep theological books by men that have, have walked in the Anglican church. And by men, by the way, N.T. Wright is an Anglican preacher. Yet he has a revelation that, that is beyond what, he, what the traditional Anglican understanding is. It's phenomenal. And he's spearheading a new reformed movement within Anglican movement. It's incredible. Okay, I read reformed. I read charismatic, Pentecostal, charismaniacs. I read the whole lot. I started searching into it. I read old scholars, Jonathan Edwards. I read through how they presented the gospel. I read through Calvin as, uh, 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 John Calvin. I read through some of these. I read through, through people that were opposed to the way that I thought, as, as well as those that, were, that would buff up the way I thought. And I started to come to my conclusion that I needed to start learning to interpret this text correctly rather than just taking it at face value. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation. No condemnation. The only people that can be condemned are those who still live in sin, and they will be condemned ultimately when we stand before the judgment seat. But they live condemned now. We are no longer sinners, but sons. If we are living in works of the flesh, we need to repent, change our minds, to begin to understand. Let me share a testimony in closing, because I've literally reached my, my time, unfortunately. I've got, we'll, we'll pick up again next week. The 
I had, a ma- I had a guy, every single, let me tell you this, it started with one guy, and then it's just followed through with every other guy that I've ever, or girl that I've ever, ever spoken to about it. But this, this bloke came to me the one day, and I was already walking in this revelation of the nature of sin taken away from me. Okay, that's what I was walking in already. This guy came, he had, he had, he had been looking at pornography for, for, for quite, a, quite a while, and then one day, um, and it was quite interesting, one day I had a meeting with a, with a pastor, like they were having dinner, him and his wife were having dinner with this incredibly, and when I mean pastor, like he's not the church leader pastor, he's a pastorally gifted man who was an elder, co-elder with me in the church while we were, you know, um, so we were, we were leading as a team, and it wasn't here in this country, it was, it was overseas, and just... This is just God's amazing way that in the midst of this dinner, out of the blue, he just said, I've been looking at pornography. I've been addicted to pornography. He's actually used the word, I'm addicted to pornography. And his wife was shocked. She didn't know what was going on. There was tears crying. And he's just like, and, and, and that had affected their intimacy. It had affected their worship to, to God, his worship to God. She was in a very different place until that day. And there was this massive conflict that came and the brokenness. And I just think that the fact that they sat in the presence of, of this pastoral ministry is the place where they brought it out. Do you know what I mean? So anyway, this obviously being leaders, it was fed back. So-and-so's, you know, been involved in this. And the guy was broken. You could see it in his face. And I remember speaking to him one day, and I said, hey, bud, I heard, uh, we've, obviously, we, you know, we've heard what happened because um, they, they told you they're going to tell the, 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 the senior leaders of the church. And, and he said, yeah, man. I said to him, do you want to talk about it? He's like, yeah, I do. So I sat down with him after church. And I remember sitting there and going to him, Mate, tell me, what is your understanding of what Jesus did on that cross? And he said to me, he died for my sins. He used the word sins. He died for my sins. I said, what else did he do? And he went, I don't know what you mean. I said, well, is that all you understand, that he died for your sins? And he said, yeah. I said to him, do you understand that he took the nature of sin out of you? Like that, that, that desire that was in you that you had no control over before him. That, that would have caused you to do what it is that you're doing by, by, by being addicted. I said to make the issue is not the pornography. The issue is your addiction. Something has gripped you so much so that without it, be it cigarettes or alcohol or pornography or, 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 or sleeping with prostitutes or whatever it may be. I don't care what your problem is. Stealing money, whatever it is, that that thing there that, that you had no control over, he has removed that nature and you now have a new nature that can actually live completely opposed to that. And I, I opened the text and I started to read through them with him over a number of weeks. And then I gave him a hand out where I said to him, here you go, mate. You know my phone number. We've connected many times. I don't care what time of the day it is. When you feel the urge, so much so that it's overriding your gift of self-control by the Holy Spirit, that you're about to look at pornography, I want you to call me. And he did. To his credit, he took the lifelines. I remember getting phone calls at obscure times of the day obscure times of the night, like at one o'clock in the morning, he would phone, and I'd, I'd say, hey, man, how you going? He's like, man, I'm in front of my computer. My wife's away, because she, she worked for an airline. My wife's away, and, and um, man, I'm in front of the computer right now, and I'm about to log on to a, to this, to a site. And, you know, the guys, the, 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 the pastor that helped him, this poor bloke, like, they went through the traditional way of doing things. It was early days before the renewal really hit, hit us, right? And, and they'd given him the special lock system that you put on so they can monitor you know, if he goes onto a website, it shows through to them, you know, that, oh, look, you know, yesterday so-and-so went onto this porno- pornographic website. It was like a little policing system. But the problem was is that it happened, they would wake up the next morning and know that he went on last night. It's already happened, you know what I mean? And I, and I, <laughs> I want to share, just let me share this quickly. Um, I read this book by Mark Driscoll, a phenomenal book, and he, he's, who knows Mark Driscoll? Led Mars Hill, yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm, 
I like him. I'm not his biggest fan, but, but, I, but I do like the bloke. So I read this book by him, and, and it's called, it's called um, Conf, uh, Confessions of a Reformation Reverend or Rev. And there's one part, this bloke phones him in the middle of the night, wakes him up at like three in the morning. He says, Pastor, Pastor. He goes, yeah, he goes, I failed tonight. I just looked at pornography. I watched a whole pornographic movie. And he says to him, did you have fun? He goes, yes. He goes, don't ever call me after you've done it at this ungodly hour in the morning. He says, if you've already done it, phone me tomorrow when I'm awake. Otherwise, phone me before you do it. And I just thought, that's amazing. So, so now I hadn't read the book at the time. I read the book many years later. But anyway, this guy took these things and I would say to him, man, have you heard the new sermon by Rob Rufus? And he goes, no, I haven't. I said, go on to this website, www.citychurchinternational.com. Go and listen to the one that he preached this last Sunday. Okay, no worries. He texts me the next day, go, Brad, I listened to that an hour and a half. Rob Rufus preaches for an hour and a half. An hour and a half sermon. Blew my mind. I feel so free. No problem. Again, he'd phone me a couple days later. Brad, I'm about to do it again. I'm really struggling. It's lunchtime. Do you want to come and meet me for coffee? I said, drive to my office. I'll take you out for, for lunch. And he'd drive to my office. We'd sit and talk. Then he'd phone me at night. Hey, go listen to this new sermon by Bill Johnson. And he'd go listen to a new sermon. I'd just give him stuff to do the whole time. Within three months, the habit was broken. Because what he had to learn to do is to live in the new nature that he had. Not in the nature that Jesus had taken upon himself to the grave. And the scriptures are clear. It says that when you, when he went to the grave, you were placed in him. So that when you went, when he went into the grave, you went into the grave with him. That when he came back out of the grave, you came back out of the grave with him. And the scriptures speak about, which we'll get into in a a couple weeks or next week, um, a new creation. The old has gone. What's the old? The old nature and the new has come. Amen? I mean, just today, I'm feeling like just preaching this, I feel liberated within myself. It's not because I'm a good preacher. It's because the truth is actually resonating inside my spirit. Like my spirit is inside. It's going mental. You know when you get tingles? I feel tingles inside of me. And every time I've preached this sermon, every time I've preached through the finished work of the cross, it doesn't matter what country it's in, we always, always see a renewal in that church. Every time. Just a liberation of the mindsets of people. The, 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 the health that it brings to the, to the church is incredible. And any unsafe person who's sitting in a meeting that's heard this have come forward and said, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. I had, a, I had a, a, a Buddhist give his life to Jesus while he snuck into a meeting and he heard us preaching on this and afterwards said, I, I want that. I, I need that. And he, and he gave his life and he's still saved to this day and I actually still know the guy who's leading him and he's still in their church. This is I don't know, eight, nine, ten years later? This is not a, uh, yeah, we had a guy, uh, we had a, a, a Buddhist put his hand up in a church. Uh, Ben's met the guy, Danushka, and with David. Young bro. It's not like, it's a, it's a story that I tell, but I have no idea where the guy is. I know this guy's born again. I, I know that he still, he actually works in the church and has a secular job at the same time. This is phenomenal. All because, not because of my preaching, but because of the simplicity of the power and of the revelation that comes with understanding what the Messiah actually did for us. And I believe it's going to do this to us as it's doing to us today already. Amen? So why don't we just close with prayer? Father, we thank you that you, in your divine sovereignty, sent your son to take on the form of a man and to begin the greatest revolution that humankind has ever seen. And we get to live in that revolution. 
and we get to live in that new life. And as we explore this incredible event of the cross, as we heard a few weeks ago about what is the gospel, which is you, Lord Jesus, you are the good news for all of mankind, we now get to see that defining, that defining event that brought us into this new life with you. And we get to see the reality of everything that you took away and everything you gave through giving yourself. We thank you that where we as mankind and our forefathers entered into a curse, you now draw us into the blessing. May we learn to live in that blessing as revelation comes and we repent of all of our stinking thinking and all of our wrong thoughts and all of our wrong theology and we start to understand the true meaning of the text that you gave us that guide us into knowing you and living with you better. In the name of your son and the authority that comes with the name of Jesus, the Messiah, we say amen. Amen. Good teaching, yeah? Great teaching. Thanks, Brad. And for what God's doing through you, brother. Fantastic. Awesome, awesome, beautiful truth. If you've enjoyed that teaching, and we know that next week will be the second half, right, of the finished work of the cross, can I perhaps put, I'll put the challenge out there. Can you think of anyone you'd like to invite to hear that message? Let's actually, like, open the house, yeah, and invite people to our home, that's what we do, to hear that message, and a message is like that, I think is just such a great opportunity, because that is what we do, right? So yeah, let's, let's invite someone along. Who will you bring next week along to hear that incredible message? Okay, um, the kettle's on. So for those of you that are visitors, stick around, we'd love to get to know you a little better, and um, yeah, have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you all again next week. Have a good one.